Mike, you're never going to believe this. What? I was sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Yeah, I mean, I think you should go first because I... uh, I could use a, just woke a, up? a minute to reflect. You just yeah. woke up? <laughs> Are you a coffee drinker? Yeah, but I um I usually wait until midday to start drinking coffee. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right, well, um, so probably the most interesting thing, uh, the most interesting thing from this past week since the last time we talked was um, Jenny and I joined... Uh, Roz Ben and then his wife working a booth at a cannabis festival in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yes, he told me about that. Now, when you say in the middle of nowhere, are you talking like fields, farms, forests? How far away? Give people an idea. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. That's a, that's a, I love to paint the picture. So I appreciate you giving me that, that opportunity. So, it was in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania has like um, a wide continuum of out in the middle of nowhere. You know, like compare it, like the two biggest cities would be Pittsburgh and Philly. And so maybe 25 miles, 50 miles outside of there, like from that perspective, that's in the middle of nowhere. And so for me living in Lancaster, which to some is in the middle of nowhere, I look at Kutztown that part of the state is the middle of nowhere, but it's at a very interesting place. There's an interesting place. Uh, um, this part of Pennsylvania is probably going to include, um, let's say Redding, Kutztown, Pottstown, Allentown, like unless you're from the area, like maybe those cities that you've never even heard of, but they're in a, an interesting part of the geography of the state. And um, we can kind of get into its its energetics. Um, this area is north of 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 the 40th parallel. It's north of um, the route uh, Highway 76. That's the the turnpike in Pennsylvania. It's north of that, but it is underneath one of the Appalachian ridges. So the Appalachian Mountains. They're not like like how you picture the Rocky mountains or any of these like really like uh, breathtaking peaks where you can see individual mountains, the Appalachians, like it almost looks like if you were to take a rug and kind of like push it together where you get folds in it, there are these long ridges of, you know, I don't know, hundreds of miles of, of continuous, like just like this one big like mountain. And so this area is all on the outside of that particular um, of that particular uh, boundary, and this this deals a lot with energies. Like we can imagine, just like the very existence of like what naturally shows itself. Like you know, that's a reflection of of a, of a type of of ge- geometric uh, uh, energy. So we're right on the outside of that. But it's not really part of which has been built up into like Philadelphia and like that, the, the lower part of um, Pennsylvania. So that energy has been really, really impacted just by like modern living, building buildings and like high density. And so when you get out into the middle of nowhere um, and particularly when there are towns, because these are all cities and towns, um, 
it's a little bit closer to like natural systems, natural energies, natural that they're going to be more, um, they're going to be more uh, available and more obvious. Um, and because this is closer to the mountains, like that kind of changes it as well. So that whole area, like I, I know it's, 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 there's something uh, unique about it and something which I don't really experience where I'm living in Pennsylvania. And these areas are kind of known for like, particularly like Redding. Redding has a very strong history and reputation of like, uh, of, 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 of dark, magicians and witchcraft and stuff like that. Um, there is a, an elite prep school known as the Hill School, which is right in the midst of this area. And of the elite prep schools, like, like the elite elite, almost all of them are found in New England, yet this one is in Pennsylvania. And so that to me, like, is significant and it kind of points to, to like, you know, some deeper levels of, of significance. Um, and there's like a like a really well-known cavern. It's called Crystal Cave around there. There's a whole bunch of interesting things there. But where where this particular event took place in Kutztown, we're I don't know, maybe like 15 miles away from a, something which is known as Indian Town Gap. And Indian Town Gap is um, I mean you could you could probably ascertain just by listening to the the word India Town Gap is first. It's a gap, so in this long continuation of you know these ridges that make up um, the Appalachians, there's a gap. It's flat. There's a break in that, and so that that's a portal. And the most you know literal definition from one from one section to another, you pass through it, and a portal is a portal is a portal. It's a doorway, and so it has that you know that quality built into it. And then, you know, just from a practical mundane state or, or, or perspective, this, this uh, um, part of the world um, like is where people would naturally go if you're, if you're, if you move primarily by walking, because, you know, it's a whole lot easier to pass through this area than, um, than it would be to, to climb over the mountain. And so, you know, it's always had that sort of purpose. And so, um, Back in the colonial times, like by the name Indian Town Gap, you you know that there were a lot of 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 the pre-colonial people were living there. It was a significant location, and you know that's always a good you know that 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 to me is a good marker of of of, of an energy to investigate. But then um, since then, it is now the. Uh, the home of the Pennsylvania National Guard, and I think it also has some other military um, uh, uh, significance. So this kind of fits in the whole narrative where um, army bases, military bases, Walmarts for that matter, are, are built upon significant areas because, you know, unless you're on that base, unless you're part of that world, you're really not going to have access to the Indian town gap. So all that being said, I see that as the primary like energy uh, uh, marker for this particular region. And then it is within that general scope is where we find this, um, I think it was called Canifest, Can um, 
in Pennsylvania. And keep in mind that Pennsylvania um, is not a recreational state, but it is a medical marijuana state. So there's like, you know, there's, there's, there, there, there are some, some, uh, um, uh, boundary points there, like from a legal perspective. So that is where the, um, where, where we find the place. And I'm going to pause for a second because I want to, I want to give you an opportunity to ask any questions about the geography I just painted, but then I want to go into, uh, uh, <laughs> the event itself and then what came out from it. So, uh, any thoughts? I have driven through the area. I will say, you know, Nothing stood out at the time, but the mountainous region, it is strange to see like, it's almost like, you know, the, 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 the ridge is, is just looming in the periphery. You can't drive over it or drive through it. Like you can some mountains. Um, at least, yeah, yeah. at least that's what I, you know, experienced driving north from where you're at and and then i'm also noticing that the schuylkill river is along the redding this whole kind of area the the lehigh schuylkill river is crossing through now i wonder though why they have two different names for the schuylkill river uh that's a good question, and I don't, I don't have a, I, I don't have an answer for that. In fact, I could go down. I, I've been asking the same thing because I saw a river which I know change names on Google Maps over the past year, and I'm like, how does this happen? But, <laughs> but I want to go back to the Schuylkill. So the Schuylkill goes kind of like through Reading, Pennsylvania, and then it connects down to the Delaware right in Philadelphia. If you know where the airport is, like in that general sort of area. Mm-hmm. And there used to be, uh, that's where all the, the football stadiums and the baseball stadiums, like that's a strong energy point. That's where we have, um, the, the airport is there in that general area. And they used to have a, um, they used to have a, a stadium, an indoor stadium, which probably, I don't know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s was, um, definitely the 60s and 70s was like the premier, like place you would go and have like a concert or something in the Philadelphia area, but they, they tore it down maybe about a, 10 years ago. It was called the spectrum. And so spectrum has like a, um, an indication um, in it's just the root spectrum comes from spirit. So it like kind of hints at that spiritual world in, in a, in a deeper level. And the word Schuylkill, Schuylkill means hidden. It's the hidden river. And, you know, one perspective could be like, you know, this was a hard river to find or it's really well guarded by by the trees in the way some of the other rivers were not. And that makes it hidden. Or you could look at hidden as like indicating like where hidden means the occult behind the veil, you know, that which is not necessarily um, seen. And so I've always looked at like with the Schuylkill and at the Delaware and that part of Philadelphia is being like, you know, uh, having great, uh, like a significant esoteric sort of purpose, even just in the names, but then the, the actual, uh, bodies of, you know, geography, bodies of water, bodies of land themselves. But the Schuylkill river is, you know, it goes through this area. And I think that's another indication. Like this area is, is, you know, if, if you drive through it, you don't think much of it. 
Um, but when you start looking at it, like there's, there's a lot more beneath the surface and, you know, some of it is, you know, kind of creepy, I suppose, but like, you know, that, that, de- that's the whole idea of like, you know, anything you can't see ha- always has a creepy element. You know, you go into a dark basement, you know, there's a, there's a bit of creepiness to it just cause you can't see it. And so this area does have that, but that doesn't necessarily mean dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I certainly remember feeling something particularly strange about the river when I was on the banks near the Philadelphia art museum and, uh, just kind of looking into the, the black water. I think it's black water, which is a type of river that leaches tannins from the many trees along its banks. Huh? But I, I, you know, and to me where I'm from, we don't have any blackwater rivers. I don't know. I don't know if that's a New England thing, but there's. I don't. Can't say I've seen any blackwater rivers. Maybe it was just a cloudy day, but that's that's my initial thought there. But yeah, yeah. So tell me more about Canifest. What what was going All right, on with so, that? So so we go there. So the place is held at a um, like the back lot of a a farmer's market and antique kind of place. Um, kind of run down, uh, lots of stands where where farmers could go and maybe wholesale sell their goods and stuff like that. Um, and we're on the back side of it and there are two very big pavilions. And when I drove up, uh, it was it was a shared booth. It was it was a shared booth um, where someone local invited Roz to join in. And then Roz was like, Hey man, this is kind of your neck of the woods. Would you, you want to come by too? So like, that's kind of what brought me into it. Um, and so I've been to, you know, a decent number. I like to go to fairs and festivals of all types. Cause I just love being around like mixes of people. And I like to look at goods and like, it's there, there's something about that experience, which definitely tickles me as like an individual. And I've got a point of reference. Like I know what sort of festivals are around this area. I know, um, you know, just a sense of like what big looks like, what small looks like, what the energy of the people look like and so forth. And to be quite honest with you, so I was, I was curious about this. I was curious about this for two reasons, because there was a, um, there's a bit of a, um, or at least to me, it seemed paradoxical. Um, I was like, on one hand, this is in the middle of nowhere and like, who's going to go and, and, you know, drive and go to this place. It's going to usually like people who come to a festival probably drive, let's say 25 miles from their home. And so I'm thinking what's 25 miles around this place. It's not going to be a lot, but that being said, like a, a, a cannabis festival, like, you know, um, is and particularly in Pennsylvania where it's still not like completely legal though. I can remember like five years ago, just like how, what, what, what it would be like if, if someone was smoking pot out in the open and like, you know, the amount of awareness you might have and versus now, like, you know, that thing, the, the amount of pressure has reduced considerably, but it's still not like totally legal. And so I'm like, you know, what is this going to be like? I'm curious about that. 
Are people going to come uh, from all around just because this is, you know, more of a taste within Pennsylvania of maybe what a total, um, at least cannabis freedom environment may look like? So anyway, so I'm curious, what's it going to be? I drive up to the place. Um, we set up, we were one of the first vendors to set up on Friday. So when we left on Friday, like I had no idea what this was going to be. And when I showed up on Sunday, I was only there for one day. Um, when I showed up there, the thing was friggin' massive. Like I was blown away by just everything. Like how many people were there? Um, uh, how many vendors were there? Uh, just the overall vibe. And so my initial reaction, my initial reaction was like, wow, this is exciting, particularly, you know, how much uh, public events have kind of changed over the past 18 months. So uh, walked around, me and Jenny walk around, we have a great time seeing all sorts of different people. And then, um, and then we settle in, we settle into like where the booth is. And so we sit down next to Roz and his, and his lady, his queen. And I start to like um, really study the event from maybe a different perspective of like, all right, well, you know, uh, I'm selling some of my books and like, I don't really know what, what to expect. And I'm just watching how this whole, like, what is this, this setup? Because there's a, um, um, there is the, my first observation was noticing this balance uh, or this dance, which was happening between what I would call um, like kind of authentic stand folks. You know, these are probably people that this is how they make a lot of their livelihood and how they live, like going to different um, festivals, selling their wares. They're like pros at it. Um, and, you know, and primarily selling, uh, um, uh, like cannabis related stuff and then like secondary things, like maybe a little bit of mystical stuff spilt over in there, like rocks and crystals and stuff like that. So that was a part of it. And there was like this really, really interesting mix and a lot of like, you know, a lot of uh, vendors just like making and selling their own stuff, both THC and CBD is what I saw, but like kind of like on the down low with the THC, but it was like kind of, um, you don't want to make a big deal about it, but, but it's not also, it's, it's, it's not exactly hidden, but it's not exactly an open air drug market, mm. but nonetheless, so there was that. Um, and then there was this, like what I would call the corporate CBD and cannabis movement. And so that would be all of like in Pennsylvania, like the dispensaries or like, you know, a really well-funded, um, uh, CBD grow because that was, that was around there. And, and you could tell the difference between the, like the, the professional, uh, 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 the professional, um, Canabros. travelers, well, the professional travelers, the guys who like, you know, they break up, they go to the different festivals, festivals, festivals. And then like, yeah, like the, the pro grade stuff by looking at what their setup looked like, because I've also been to many, many like, um, like uh, fortune 100 uh, expos. And so I know what that environment is like too, in like high technology or like even within like medical devices. And so this had that vibe to it. This had like, you know, there's, it's totally corporate and I'm looking at this thing. So I'm first looking at it from that perspective 
and kind of seeing like how that bumps in, like, you know, just the people who are, are manning the booth. And I'm not saying this like judgmental, like, you know, this is better than that. I'm saying this in terms of like, you know, what is the zeitgeist of this? What is the feeling of this type of environment and how they meet? Because they're, they're complementary. And by my, um, the ultimate takeaway on this segment, before I get into the people who were there, um, was this, uh, that particularly as, um, as things become uh, potentially much more reg- regulated, whether that be with passports and travel and stuff like that, um, going to like public places, going to the mall, going to things like that, um, these types of of cannabis festivals are going to probably be one of these last like gray areas where different worlds can intermingle rather rather um, easily. And the reason why I say that is there is such a government push behind the professional legalization of, of marijuana and like dispensaries and that, that um, that's going to allow these festivals to continue to happen because they have a vested interest because this is kind of like this meeting area. That's why I was talking about portals. This is where we're seeing this one, this one marketplace or this one uh, uh, community, if you will, this kind of like when cannabis was completely illegal, like that type of festival had a very different vibe. And now it's kind of like blurring over between like this one pocket of, of like more of a, a, a natural type of community and culture is becoming, um, it's becoming uh, mixed in with, the legal world and, you know, being brought into the fold and we'll watch and I'm watching that happen. So without even getting into that, what we do know is there's going to be a time and a place that this is going to continue to exist as it exists, where it's kind of like, you know, um, there's, there's an agreement that this is going to happen. And, and there's, as I said, like it wasn't exactly a, a, uh, an open air drug market. You're you're not exactly supposed to be able to go and openly sell THC product in Pennsylvania yet, but it's agreed that yeah, if you're not going to talk about it, this can happen. So there's this like this blending area, and my senses, my senses, you know, as things. Um, as life unfolds, that this is going to be a nice avenue which people are going to be able to interact under that umbrella with a little bit more freedom outside of just like anything related to cannabis. Mm. So that was the first point, and I, I took away from that experience. Yeah. Well, you're bringing to mind like something that I thought about a little bit over the past few months is like Pennsylvania being in a as above, so below sort of way, like a microcosm for the rest of the United States. And you see on two borders, right? Well, not two. Um, Washington, D.C. doesn't quite border Pennsylvania, but it's close enough. And then New Jersey, both states, D.C. technically not a state, but they have legal cannabis. New Jersey has legal cannabis. My state has it now. I think if Pennsylvania does it, Mike, 
the rest of the country is going to follow suit pretty quickly because Pennsylvania for being, uh, you know, leaning one way politically is very balanced, you know, as far as demographic goes, it's like, you have a big representation of rural people, mountain people, city people, suburb people, you know, like it, it just, I feel like Pennsylvania kind of is an American state in that sense. Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, I never thought that there was, as soon as this became like, as soon as it become, anything becomes politicized, like, you know, it's, it's no longer grassroots. And as soon, like it was, the, the, the legalization of cannabis is, is like, you know, it's not a grassroots sort of thing. I mean, you have to, if, you, if, if you're watching this, you, you, you realize, you have to realize that. I mean, and look at all of the people who are becoming it. And this, this line of, of, of like, uh, corporate, corporate grows versus like, oh, regardless, like that, that's a different discussion. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like Pennsylvania, I think is a good like timeline marker in terms of like how, how much this is, um, this is going to like unfold across America. But when I was talking about these festivals, I'm not limiting it to Pennsylvania. I'm talking about like, um, all of them. And like, regardless of the legal, the legality, what was, what was clear to me was because Pennsylvania, there's a legality issue, but there isn't any sort of legality issues in some of these other states. Um, you, you got a different flavor of how this was still allowed to just happen, even if it's not totally legal. Mm. But that being, but the real thing is this dance between ha- when this, this sub, this festival cannabis sub kind of culture becomes totally like mainstream. It becomes totally mainstream, totally corporate, totally. And so we're what, that's like the window. And I think that these, these events, like particularly if you see these events, like, you know, they're, they're managed usually by, by, you know, promoters and their larger ones and smaller ones, but this is a particular type of event in which people are still um, meeting that underneath that umbrella, regardless of what state, if you see where these happen are happening, these are going to be, um, you know, uh, I say this with a little bit tongue in cheek, but safe space for people to kind of like meet and, and meet other people. If you, if, uh, of like-mindedness because that's not the coffee shops anymore. That's not the, you know, all of these other places where, where people used to meet. And as that's becoming tougher and tougher, um, and stranger and stranger, this, this particular environment, I think is going to be, um, uh, uh, an infrastructure for other types of, um, you know, just meeting, meeting the other travelers, and when I say that, I mean like understanding what's happening in this world right now. So that, that's, that was one of the more exciting things for me to think about because those are the sort of, those are the sort of questions which, which I put in my mind. Like, okay, what's it going to look like over the next year? Like, you know, uh, as, as doors are open or shutting, what windows are opening and, and, and you begin to see where the flow goes. So that was, that was like the first thing. Like, you know, when walking through the event, getting the lay of the land that way. And then when we sat down, really beginning to go and, um, and uh, uh, study who are the other um, attendees, the other people who are coming to this event. Right. And, um, and there I was a little bit... Um, 
I was a little bit, uh, and, and this could very well be because of the part of the world it was, but there were probably, you know, in the most simplistic way, like there were like four or five different demographics, which I would say 85, maybe even 95% of the, the goers went, uh, uh, the, the attendees of the, of the event, I would put them in. And I'm saying this in levels of consciousness and how they're meeting reality. Like, you know, you can just tell by, 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 you know, the age and the dress and, and that sort of stuff, like, you know, kind of where someone is in life. And for the most part, like, you know, yeah, they're, they, they want to go to a cannabis festival, but you know, it's, you know, it's, this is just their target. You know, it's no different than that. It's, this is their identity and this is, you know, what they're doing, Mm -hmm. but within that group. And so this is what was so fascinating. So I, we have this in, in the midst of 200 vendors and for the most part, everything was like really, really high quality, interesting goods, but it was all kind of like, as you would imagine, it would appeal to a cannabis audience. And then we have within these 200, in 200 booths, in um, uh, we have um, the booth which me, Ross, and um, Men's Soul Art, I believe that was the name of the uh, the the name of the woman who who had the booth. Um, that was what what her operation was known as. And so I'm watching the people come by and we all have like this, uh, not just kind of like mystical sort of, um, uh, you know, like if you were to, uh, if you were to go to a metaphysical show, if you were to go to a metaphysical show, like, you know, all of just as what we saw in the cannabis show, like where, where like, uh, nine out of every 10 booths is selling like, you know, glassware or, or, or something along those likes. Um, and much less would be like kind of mystical. Um, if you were to go to like a, like a new agey or mystic sort of fair, and I like to go to those too, is like, you know, everyone there is selling like crystals or what, what things similar to that. And so Ross had a lot of like crystals around there and it, in the booth. And this was a rarity compared to the other, the other booths that were in this place, but then nestled within his crystal display um, was a setup of his books, um, you know, all about mystic Philadelphia and then his gem books. And then also his decoding, um, uh, the doggone and, um, a lot of that type of history. And then you have my book on, um, the rights to the 40th parallel and Ross's book also, I think it's called, uh, free your mound, but his, his work and my work, um, they are like, uh, you know, for, for lack of a better description, it's, it's like advanced level mysticism. Like if we were to have our stuff at like a normal, like, you know, uh, like mystics fair, <laughs> probably half of them, like it's not for them. They're like, this isn't my language. I want to go in maybe something a little bit like not as like in depth and detailed and all this sort of stuff. But for the people who it resonates with, you know, it's a smaller percentage. And so we have in the middle of this huge like canifest sort of thing where that is the draw for most of the people. We have buried in the middle of it like this like really, really like deep, deep sort of stuff. And uh, if I do say this, like it was it was shown beautifully, like his work through the mixture of his crystals and some of his like handmade artifacts. 
and I had my quilted map of the Susquehanna River, and I got my like Sus like the John Smith map one there. Like it was it was really really beautiful. But if you're not if you're not paying attention, if you're just walking around mindlessly, this is so easy. This is such a needle in the haystack, mm. such a needle in the haystack. And so understanding that, understanding what I'm bringing to the table, what Roz is bringing to the table, it's like this is here. And anyone of the, I mean, there had to have been, um, I don't know, a couple thousand people in attendance, uh, if not more, like of the ones that would walk by and only a small percentage of the people would even come into our booth. Um, but of that, only a smaller percentage of those would actually like look at the books or look at the stuff we have there. And I would just watch their eyes, but you would see that I could see that I could see like, wow, this is a person like this resonates for like, this is, this is only going to resonate with like uh 0.001% of the population. And like, that's one of them. And so every single time that there was like a meaningful conversation, you know, whether it was me and the person or Roz and the person or Jenny and the person that came by, I'm like, this is like, you know, there were so many loops and hoops that had to have been crossed for that person to come and to be touched by this and like for us to have an interaction. Like that was, that to me was the real, um, that's what I'm seeing these sort of these uh, looking for these events where we can come together. When I'm saying events, it could be anything. When I say we, I just mean the like-minded as we're beginning to like form those networks and however they would show. And I would say I probably had, um, I would say one really, really meaningful conversation where I was like, okay, I got the right information in the right person's hands at the right time. And so that to me, like made everything like this is, this was the one reason why I went there um, in terms of what I am to give. And then there was one thing for me to receive and there, and I'll tell you about that in a moment, but that was the next level of, of the event. Um, what are your thoughts on that and the people and, and, and that sort of stuff? I love it. I love the picture you're bringing to mind of the, the serendipity that c occurs in someone's life that would lead them to stumble across your work by accident. And then it, it happens to also be a good fit for where that person is in their exactly. reality. It's, it's definitely when it does happen, you got to be like, Oh wow. All right. But yeah, it's bringing to mind, you know, my position in New Haven for the past 10 years. I feel like so much goes on in this city that most people turn a blind eye to. And I've been sort of like, I can't leave. I got to I gotta keep going to these used bookstores and, and get these weird books that always end up there for some reason, you know, as Yaley's graduate and, and sell their books off. There's a, a Jesuit book here and a Skull and Bones book there. And, uh, you know, so I feel like without me in town, I might those books would just kind of go unnoticed until the next guy like me comes around in five years. So that's that's the feeling I'm, I'm getting right ah. now. You're describing this, you know, the milieu of people. And, and you know, it just it's the, the right people who vibrate to the display almost a 10 i've done similar things i worked at a farmer's market selling bread and then i had friends through the farmer's market who 
were starting kind of like their own smaller decentralized farmers market in a different town. And I said, well, I can't, you know, bring my bread stuff there because I don't own the company, but I, I make, you know, crystal wraps. I've showed you those before, I think. Yes, you have. So I sold some of my crystals there and <laughs> I realized pretty quickly that I had to adjust for who was there. Cause I noticed this is a lot of families and kids. So I put, you know, instead of my wraps out on the table, I put some of like the larger stones and the, the seashells and things that would appeal to the large amount of like younger folks that were in this particular farmer's markets demographic, so to speak. But yeah. Listen to you merchandise. <laughs> so, uh, so you, you brought up, oh God, uh, like going back to like the, the chapter before this, when I was talking about like infrastructures, um, uh, use bookstores, use bookstores are definitely, I think another one of these areas in which there's going to be, you know, uh, uh, an infrastructure for, for finding the folks. Um, and so that, that's really interesting. And it's a very, very kind of different vibe than like, let's say the pop-up sort of, you know, traveling festival. Um, this happened, I just want to throw this, because you brought this up, I want to throw this quick story out. So uh, two or three days before, before, the, um, before the festival, Jenny and I were in downtown Lancaster, and we're like, hey, where should we go next? And like, we, we went and got a cup of coffee, and, and we were talking through some stuff, and we then were like, after that, we're like, we're, let's, we're down here. Let's go and, and, you know, have a little bit of adventure. And so we were right by a used bookstore. It was the used bookstore that I sent you and Tyra to. The dog star. Right, right, exactly. And this is one of my favorite used bookstores um, for a variety of reasons. Like both its layout, like it kind of has this uh, really cool used bookstore feel to it. And then like, you know, the name of it, like all sorts of different things. So, we walk in, we walk in, and um, I won't go into greater detail, but it was the first time in my experience that I um, was more or less like harassed and told to leave because I wasn't wearing a mask. Mm. And it was one of those things and it, it got in my head. Like I thought about it a lot for like two days because it bumped up against a whole bunch of different, you know, places for me, like, you know, boundaries. I was like, uh, because I like that place. And then I was like, Oh, and I'm like, you know, this is also where this guy, where this guy's world is. And, and he, he, it's his store. Like I respect that. And I look at that as a boundary of where I want to go or not. But then also I'm like all these different things. So, so long and short of it is, it's interesting that you brought up like the used bookstore. Um, but then, um, as another one of these, these vehicles, but then also a recognition of like, you know, all, you know, just being aware that these places are changing too. Uh, what I do think I want to do is next time I go to use bookstore, I want to start like putting into the books that I find interesting. I'm just going to put in some of my Susquehanna alchemy postcards, like the ones with the maps on them. Have you ever yeah, seen those postcards? You've sent and I've just yes. like for some, just for someone to find that, like, I love that, that kind of, um, that kind of, uh, uh, like serendipity, like purposely mm. playing serendipity. I'm going to put this in there. I don't know who's going to receive it. I don't know when they're going to receive it, but like, you know, just playing that, that game of, of roulette. 
I love but, like, can, can we can we go back to uh, we'll go back to the festival? Yeah. All right. All right. So I'm going to paint you one last like visual picture, and then and then I'm going to tell you what I got from there. So how I told you in the beginning, like it was held at this kind of rural um, uh, auction location, like a very utilitarian place. There's some indoors and outdoors and where the, how the festival was set up. They, um, they had it set up around these two very large pavilions and these pavilions have roofs on them, but they're open air pavilions. They are, um, they are, uh, the sides are open and what was so nice about, and that was where the majority of the vendors were. So it was almost like being in an indoor mall, if you will. But then it was also surrounded by uh, like pop-up tents and that type of environment, which you would see also in festivals. So it had this mixture of like walking through people's tents and being outside, but then also being able to go inside. But if you've ever been to like an indoor festival, like if it's in like a, a conference center or something like that, you're underneath, you're underneath the uh, um, fluorescent lights and there's no like real natural air. And this was like this perfect blend because it was open air um and but it was covered so like there was uh you're you're outside of the direct sunlight and you felt like you were in part of something um and they had just the perfect amount of incandestine lights like strung up across these very large pavilions um so that it was natural light with a little bit of artificial light but that was necessary so the 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 depths of it did not wasn't so dark but it was the most perfect sort of environment, like this blending of indoors and outdoors. Uh, it has a real kind of like auctioneer vibe. Like there is something, at least within the history of our civilization narrative of, of bazaars, of places where people come to like sell their wares. Um, there's something about that which is deep within our, within our history, regardless of the culture you come from. Um, and so like this kind of tapped into that. And I, I get a, I, I personally, I still get, as I said, I get like, I get, I get, I feel that energy and it's very exciting to me to be around all of that. So that being said, that being said, uh, I had multiple, multiple hats when I went to this. I knew I was going to have multiple hats. And, and part of it, part of what's fun to go to a fair and a festival is to get a souvenir. You know, there's something like over the top with materialism. But then there's also a place within the human story where like materialism does like, you know, it's it's not over the top. And souvenirs may be an example of that, a true souvenir, which connects you to a time or an event. And so like getting like something uh, which you take as a reminder from a place. And so for the most part, I'm walking around. I'm a really, really, really um, uh, uh uh, hold a high bar for what I'm going to buy. If I'm going to buy something, it's got to be good, whatever the thing is, like whatever my definition good is. So I, I'm a discriminative buyer. And I'm walking around, I'm looking at all these, these, these booths. And for the most part, it's nothing which I really want to buy. And for the most part, they're all kind of the same. And for the most part, like I recognize that 
You know, it's, it's, I, it's cool. And I love the people and I love to see the stuff. But I'm like, I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm thinking this in my head. I'm like, I'm not going to buy any of this. Like I have no problem not getting a souvenir if it's not the right one. So walking all around and then we get to this one booth. It's kind of tucked in the middle of, um, it's tucked in the middle of all of these booths. And I really enjoy to notice now, you know, we live in the, the Etsy era. We're in the, po- we're in post Pinterest era. And what I mean by that is like booths, there's an artistry which people bring to their booths. And a lot of people who sell their own crafts, like it's really, really cool to see this, like, you know, this real crafty sort of stuff. I've seen these in all these other booths. Um, and I appreciate that. But then I find this other booth. And what this booth is, like I, there's, imagine like a, like a, if you had a cardboard box, a pretty big, heavy duty cardboard box, and you cut it out so that like it lays flat in the longest section possible. So it's probably, I don't know, like three feet by two feet, maybe four feet by two feet of cardboard of this, of this, what was once a cardboard box laid flat. And then there's an entire, like, it's an entire wall of text written in like, you know, a big marker. Like someone went and they wrote out all of this stuff or this, this thing. And you can tell that it's old. Like it looks old. Like this is what they do. Like it's almost like a really, really good, like homeless person sign. Like, if you see a good sign, like, you're going to stop and read it. Like, at least I do. And so I see this, and I read it. And it's this guy telling his story of his booth. And his story is basically this. It's like, uh, I spent half my, half my life in a village in Pacopa, Peru, and I'm studying with his family, and I'm here, and I'm selling my goods. And these are all goods which come from my Peruvian family. And I'm like... All right, hook, line, and sinker. I'm like, this is what I live for. Like, you know, I go because, and, and the town, the town which he says in Peru, I've been in Peru once in my life, and the town which he said his family is in, it's a city, it's a smaller city, it's Pacopa. Uh, you know, it's not Lima, it's Pacopa. It's not like, you know, the, uh, it's, it's a lesser known, a tertiary city, and, and like in, in Peru, and I'm like, that's my city, that's the one I went to. So I've got this connection, and, and I'm looking at all the stuff and and the guy there is probably I'd say he's probably your age and I asked and and he's 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 a white dude um but he's dressed in all of um like real Peruvian um inspired sort of clothes like regular clothes but I could see like he's done his own embroidery on his jeans and stuff like that if you're paying attention and like, this is the guy, he's like, yeah, I live in Yonkers right now. And I grew up like in the Northeast, but like my life path took me down to Peru and I resonated so deeply. Like I, I spent half my, I've spent the last five years living half my life there. And like, I resonate so deeply with it that these people took me into their life and they taught me their stuff. And so like, he's got that vibe there. And so I, I, I strike up a nice uh, uh, conversation with him. And there are a couple things, there are a couple things which, um, which, uh, he had there, which were interesting. So so some of the stuff was like handmade, like from his family, like Peruvian sort of stuff. And then some of it I think was probably a little bit more, um, commodified, like Peruvian, like gloves and stuff like that. But there was a mixture and you could tell, and included in that mixture, there was this really nice collection of, um, of alpaca, uh, woolen, beautiful blankets. And they're pretty reasonably priced. And so, um, 
uh, me and Jenny were like, uh, we both like textiles. We're like, okay, this is nice because, uh, you know, we, we like a blanket. Winter's coming up and we need the blanket. So there was that. But I'm also going through, I'm going through um, uh, a pile. Like I had to dig through this table and then go through this pile of all of these um, hand-woven uh, textiles. And if you're familiar with the artistry and artistic styling of the Shipibo people of, of Peru, there's a certain like, there's a certain style and it's also very much tied in to um, the ayahuasca culture there. And this is a stack of these handmade Shipibo ayahuasca sort of like art, um, artifacts, if you will. They were just, you know, um, circles with that have been woven with designs upon them. And I'm going through them. I'm like, all right, I hit the jackpot here. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And um, whereas like the blankets are, as I said before, kind of commoditized, this is immensely personal. And I'm going through, and then there's one that jumps out at me. There's one that jumps out at me. And it's this circular one, probably, I don't know, like let's say eight inches in diameter. And I see on the back of it, there is a little piece of masking tape uh, on the back, and there's a name written on the back. The name was Nalia, I believe. And none of the other ones had this, like a name on the back. And so I knew this was the one I was going to get. This is the one I was going to get. It um, It spoke to me in a couple of reasons. I'm like, if I'm going to get a souvenir, this is my souvenir. And, and I'm excited for it. And this is what I came for. Because this is not something which I can find anywhere. This is a chance meeting on my end. And so I go and I'm talking to the guy. I'm talking to the guy. This is how I learned about him. You know, we were talking for a little bit. And I show him the back of this, 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 this round textile. And I'm like, who is this? And then he starts telling me all about the woman. He's like, oh, this is Nalia. And she made it. And this is her age. And this is what she does. And this is where her specialties are. Like in all aspects of, of her human story, if you will. And I'm like, do you have a picture of her? And he's like, yes, I do. And he pulls this picture of, of um, on his phone of her. And I go and I look into the eyes of the person who's holding, who's hold, or I'm holding a textile which she made in her hands, I don't know how long ago, but I'm making this sort of connection. And so I take this home, I take this home. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this? In fact, I put it in my hat. So I always wear a hat. And, uh, and I, I wore it inside of my hat for that entire day. Uh, just kind of, for whatever reason, like that felt to be like the, the right thing for me to do. And then I'm like, what am I going to go and do with this? And so what I did was I turned it. I took her art and then I, I applied it. I applied it to my own craft making. And so I made this, this collaborative piece, whereas I took hers and then I created a foundation in which it can sit upon. So I took um, two different pieces of fabric, one piece of fabric, which was from the church, which I spent 60 days in last mm. year. And then a piece of fabric, which was um, like just a drop cloth uh, 
uh, if you've ever seen like the, the canvas drop cloths you can use for painting, like commercial painting or regular painting, mm. they may, they're the best. I, I use those a lot for things. So I, I cut out two pieces, probably about 10 inches by 10 inches, same size. And then I fixed the circle onto it and then did my own weaving around it. And so this is now my collaborative piece um, with this woman who I don't know other than the fact that we, we're speaking the same language of, of, you know, crafting for lack of a different word, just like how musicians can play together and they're speaking in that language of music. This is a language of crafting. And so I've done that. And now this piece is going to be part of my practice. And I have just made this connection. You know, this whole thing of what I've been describing to you all about this, you know, beginning with like Indian town gap being in the portal of going from one side of one of the ridges to another side of one of the ridges and one of the oldest mountain chains on the entire earth. And then like, you know, looking at the changing of times and infrastructures and ways which we're going to connect and and, and go through doorways and then looking at people who are connecting with my work. And then I got to then be on the receiving edge and then be able to connect with another person's work. So that, my friend, that was the story which I wanted to share with you. So, so many things to, to comment on. I just, I think that's great because, you know, especially considering you've been to that exact city, it's not the capital city, so the chances aren't too high. Yeah. You mentioned having a, a chance meeting. Well, I had a meeting with Chance from the Interverse podcast. Someone uh, you're from well played. <laughs> you know Chance, right? Oh, I know Chance very well. I'm, I'm gonna. I'll talk about that once you finish with this story. But yeah, so Chance and I um, both have podcasts. His podcast has been going on far longer than mine. I think he started in 2014. And somebody reached out to me and said, hey, I love all the work you're doing. I think this was one of the messages that I was looking for last week but didn't read. Okay. And he mentions, you and Chance are my synchro gurus. So, so I'm like, okay, you know, that's an, that's an odd thing to say. Somebody calling me a synchro guru, I, I'm kind of just getting into all this stuff. So I'm like, well, if chance is, is the other synchro guru, let me talk to this guy. And then I, I go, I check out his show and I find out, oh, he has a lot of the same, uh, friends and acquaintances that I do. So not only, you know, ha has he had yourself on the show, he's had Lindsay Sharman, who I, I've also had on the show, uh, Benjamin Balderson, Santos Bonacci, a, a bunch of people. So, <clears throat> excuse me, long story short, we hit it off. It was a great conversation, and I think I inspired Chance to go out and investigate the Mississippi River and the, you know, area that he's in, in Missouri, um, somewhat, because you know, I kept poking at him like, well, have you done this? Have you done that? And he answered twice. He said, you know, well, come back to me, you know, in a few months and I'll be able to answer that better. So it was interesting. You know, when did you guys have that conversation? This was Friday. That was Friday. Okay. And, um, and yeah, we ended up talking about several different things. 
One of the more interesting things that came out was his idea of parasites. And I kind of asked him, and I'm not sure how he answered it, whether it was directly or indirectly, but I asked him if he thought maybe parasites were connected to archons in some way, you know? And then I think it was just out of nowhere, he says exactly what we were talking about on last week's episode, which was the idea that synchronicities can be in some cases not leading you to the best place. He, the way he put it was like, sometimes he, he thinks sometimes team dark sets up synchronicities to take us down the wrong path. So that was kind of the, the connection point there. Cause I, I don't think I had brought that up, but he did. And it was fantastic. And I'm getting the pictures right now of the, right. uh, of the cloth. Very cool. Wow. So the, the second picture is the finish. So the difference between the first one and the second one um, are a couple lines on the border. And then the third one is the backside. Right. So now it's now, now this half side on the back is yours is what you're saying. No. So the only thing which, so hers was the circle. Oh, okay. 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 I get what so you're saying. So I just had a circle. And do you see how now it's yeah. all integrated? Like it looks like one complete. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it almost yeah. reminds me of um, Asian, like Japanese artwork in a way. Uh, it certainly has a feel to it. Uh, I mean, well, well, Peru definitely has a strong like uh, Eastern influence, right. just you know, being on the that side of the Orient, or like you know, closer to to God being on the the West Coast of South Amer- of America. Um, so certainly, there's 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 lots of there's mm-hmm. lots of bleed over in cultures. Um, so I heard from Chance this weekend too. Right on. Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting. You said that. Um, and then, and, and maybe this is, uh, and, and I'm curious, he and I are going to do another show. I think we're doing it next week. Um, but I'm curious, like the, the idea of parasites, I think about a lot. Um, and I'm, I, I want to hear what he says and maybe we'll talk about that. But now that we're talking though, what, what I think is interesting, what you, you just brought up, um, ties in directly to the email which we received from from the from our last conversation, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do not remember the contents because I just wanted to have like a more fresh response. But when I saw when I saw what it was about, I figured I would forward it to you so you would have a copy of it, and then all right. So so I'll refresh your memory. It was about, it was about, um, someone was asking us to talk about, yes. to talk about, um, things within the conspiratorial world, which kind of like muddy, ridiculous, outrageous, uh, claims that are mixed in with like real sort of things worthy of investigation. Before, which, we, before we get to the, cause I just opened it up and you're right. It's, it's long, it's detailed and it's very interesting. But it's the same thing which you just talked about. Hmm. And that's why that this is the link I want to make because we talked in our last episode or our last show, we were talking about the idea of manipulated um, synchronicity. 
And so, so, and, and do, and do we talk about the trickster, uh, the trickster archetype? I think so. I don't know how much of that made right. it through because of that audio uh, discrepancy that we talked right, about. Right, right. But, but we talked about the trickster and we talked about like, you know, the, the idea, like, you know, what is the trickster and, and, and its purpose and the trickster's purpose, you know, is the trickster a good guy, is the trickster a bad guy? And, you know, ultimately it's, it depends upon like, you know, where you meet that. But I'm going to su- I'm going to suggest that like the, the same thing is true with, with, the manipulation of, you know, the, 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 the limited hangouts, the, the misinformation in the, uh, the counterintelligence, if you will, within the, the, the conspiracy world, because that's what was, that's what was asked about. Like, it's really the same sort of idea, the same archetype, the same energy of like kind of being messed with in a way. Mm. And then it, it, it begs, um, you know, then it, it begs you to take a step back and, you know, like, what is its purpose? What does it do? What does the trickster do? It reveals. Well, at the, it depends upon what, what level, like, do you get tricked by it? Mm. Yeah, right? Well, it, brings like a, it brings another level of awareness, in another word. It ha- well, it either has to. It either has to. You either like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought this was true and I trusted this. And like, you know, this, this is where I got hooked. And then you tricked me. You know, that's the whole thing. Like, uh, trick me once, shame on you. Sh- trick me twice, shame on me. Um, so the trickster, you know, by doing that, introduces you like to areas within your, uh, to blind spots that you hold. Why are they blind spots? Because you've taken something without exam, something is true without examining it. Mm. And that is a universal truth. And then depending upon where you are in life. So that would be like, um, you know, first is you are the fool in the fact that you didn't realize there are tricksters out there and you could get tricked. And then, um, and then you could begin to learn like, Oh wait, there are tricksters out there and they're tricking at any given time. And then, so you're kind of like, you know, on, on guard, if you will. And then you get to a point that you realize the trickster is actually the person that allows me to see things as they are. And in fact, I would have never seen things as they were, if they, as they are, how deep things go, if it wasn't for the trickster. Hmm. And so if you, and I'm not saying one's right or wrong, it's just like looking at this from different ways. And so if we can go and look at it from this very detached way, um, you know, that's true with the trickster, which is, which is messing with synchronicity or the trickster that's messing with like, you know, with, with the narratives that are unfolding before our lives on the TV screen. Um, like they're all making us become more and more aware, or it's going to at least meet us at a certain level or where we are. And then to me, at least it then provides a greater clarity as to um, how do you want to play in this, in this game? I couldn't agree more. I'm just, uh, yeah, I can't help but think of Sam in a way 
Sam Tripoli as a trickster character. I went to see him perform live on uh, Saturday night in New Jersey. And one thing that I'm starting to realize now, and it's to your point about the Cana Festival, where there's this new outlier sort of culture that's going to facilitate a real getting to know people rather than this fake, you know, corporate politicized version that they're pushing us towards through social media, there are going to be chances to find your tribe, so to speak, and and find your community. But I think it's folks like Sam Tripoli and maybe even us who are building communities, you know, like Sam has all these folks who will come out and see him perform, even though he's been pretty much, you know, blackballed from the more mainstream comedy sectors. And then you, you have Owen Benjamin who, who came on to his show this past week and they were talking a lot about this as well, like going off the grid and Owen kind of same thing got pretty much defamed, so to speak. He was very famous as a comedian, said some things that people didn't like. And then the PC people, basically canceled him right that's what they're calling it then he moved to idaho and started his own thing and now he has this like documentary called bear taria him and his friends are are building houses out of stone but one thing that he mentioned that was you know more particular to my point is that he was able to arrange his own comedy tour with fans who would say you know email him and say hey i have a a barn you're more than welcome to do a show here. So he created his own decentralized comedy tour totally outside of the normal system. So I think, you know, to your point about the Canna Festival, I think it's going to be something like that where folks who are in tune with synchro mysticism, for example, and like the work you put out and Ross Ben's work, it's going to be on them to find it and, and, they're going to participate in the synchro mysticism to come and be a part of it in that sort of bringing it back to the old, but also integrating the new in the same way that you just synchronistically ran into this guy from Peru, a place that you have a connection to. I think the internet, if we can use it wisely, like in Owen Benjamin's case, we can live off the grid and be decentralized, but, create our own system through which we can communicate with huge groups of people. You know, we're not limited like we used to be to a geographical location. That is undoubtedly happening. There's undoubt, like, you know, the community is being, being built. Um, and so again, with the, you know, let's go back, let's go back to the trickster idea. Um, and, and you're absolutely right about, you know, comedians and their role within like playing those types of archetypes. But, um, you know, the, the, the occurrences, every, everything, everything about our culture, everything about like, you know, um, the way we live was created. 
and, and scripted. And then, you know, the, the, the collapse is, is, is for the most part, um, you know, whether you want to look at it as like the, it's like the dominoes falling. There's a degree of randomness in terms of what it will look like, but you know, it was kind of set up a certain way. Uh, that was all set up by the trickster, like in terms of an archetype. And so by, by recognizing that. And so this goes back to that email because the email was talking a little bit about um, uh, the questions of like what our thoughts are in terms of like, you know, the um, and, and maybe we'll go through some of those exa- examples, but um, the truth is all of this stuff um, becoming aware of it makes it clear as to what, what you want to be a part of, what you don't want to be a part of, and then finding those like-minded folks. Um, and if it wasn't for the circumstances that are occurring, well, that probably would not happen. There would not be a motivation. And that's like, you know, that's the whole idea of like how the trickster moves things forward. Like it's not, you know, depending upon your perspective, it can be comfortable or uncomfortable, but, um, Undoubtedly, that that is the hand behind these these uh, what's going on now. I agree. Yeah, I think the uh, the Rosicrucians kind of got my interest in the past few months, but I I'm almost coming to the conclusion that it's not one group. I mean, it's just it's just a, a role that's played by many groups in conjunction with one another. Well, that's the cool thing about archetypes is the fact that um, is the fact that an archetype goes through culture, like it is not limited by cultures or um, individual people. Like you know, every culture has a trickster in a certain way. The 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 adversary, the person who does the opposite, though it can vary in, in, um, specifics from culture to culture. And so, um, yeah, like it's, it's certain things are, are always played, um, are played, uh, by different people. And, and, and the Rosicrucians, I think are one of the most interesting people. Cause I've thought so much about it. Cause I've spent time, I've spent time in the camp where like the Rosicrucians are the good guys. Oh, the Rosicrucians are the bad guys. And that's the whole irony of the trickster is because where you're going to meet it is going to define, set the, the, whether or not the definition is trickster is the good guy moving us forward and great getting more enlightenment or trickster is the bad guy who's destroying all that I know and love. Mm. And the Rosicrucians fit both of those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, fallen under the same spell so to speak i had a book called uh the secret doctrine of the rosicrucians that i got at the the shining lotus bookstore in denver colorado maybe five five years ago and and i'm looking through this book and i'm like secret doctrine of the rosicrucians this is this is all chakra and yoga stuff and then i realized oh there, somebody. There's been you know sixty years of people getting the same book and then just rewriting the same stuff, you know, under their authorship and saying like, oh, these are the techniques to heal your chakras. So, I found you know 
pretty quickly that the secret doctrine wasn't so secret, but maybe that was part of it too. It's like, Hey, let's put all of our most obvious information in this book called the secret doctrine. So then nobody finds out what we're really all about. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you got it at some point you got to jump right in, right? Like when you don't know something and then you jump right in and then you don't know what is what. You don't know what is true, what is false, what is fantasy, what is not. And particularly when you want to go into, um, you know, the, the mysteries. Mm. And so that has to be, that has to be part of the process. Part of the process is getting lost to that at least get your bearings to at least get your bearings. And so, um, you know, even more so, it's like, you know, what, what was the phrase you used? Like, I went down that spell or something like, you know, you, you said a phrase in a certain way, which which I interpreted kind of like had like a like a, a tinge of judgment to it. And in my opinion, like that is the initiation initiations and the initiations are never pretty. They're never comfortable, but the initiation into like going into like just the general quote unquote mysteries is the fact that you got to go and realize like there are all sorts of tricksters there too, but you're not going to learn that until you begin to look around and compare and see and like, you know, you get the discernment and that only comes, you know, that only comes with wisdom. How do you get wisdom? By making bad choices. (laughs) Right. So like that is part of this process seemingly. And like, that's what that's you could, to me, you know, when I choose to look at the trickster as an archetype, um, like that's the first thing is recognizing that. And then secondly is like, you know, rec- uh, being able to answer that question, um, on various levels of, um, of consciousness. Uh, and what I'm thinking like, uh, at, on one level is, um, you know, the, uh, as it relates to tricksters, you know, the tricksters who are useful idiots, you know, that's a phrase that, that really means something. It has a real implication about consciousness. And then you've got like the tricksters, which are, and I'll just use this word in a general sense, uh, the, the Satanists or completely self-serving or egotists. And then you've got the tricksters who are like, listen, you know, uh, this was never, this was always temporary and now it's time for it to come down. So it's, you know, this has always been the process. I'm going to bring it down. This is my job. It's not personal. Hmm. Like the role, the role that they're playing, it's just a role. It's reminding me of what Chance and I talked about with, uh, you know, some people are just, they come into this life to do evil things and and maybe in the grand scheme of things, if it wasn't for team dark, so to speak, doing, you know, showing where the matrix has, you know, uh, a weak point or whatnot, then we wouldn't evolve. You know, it's like a type of, of evolution. Like the lion is constantly, pushing the prey animals to you know go beyond their already set abilities to survive you know and the lion is is then pushed to be more you know cunning or whatnot lioness in in the case of lions but this balance of predator and prey seems like maybe on a spiritual level on a higher level than just you know animals 
attacking and eating one another, I think it is it, it it's it seems inevitable, you know, going back to the yin and the yang and the duality thing. And I'm wondering, you know, is this part of our movement to the next age, the age of Aquarius, where we're getting out of duality, or is duality just the lesson that we learned and now we understand it, move forward, there's no going back, duality's here to stay, but we have to be able to move on to the next lesson that Aquarius is teaching us because the Piscean lesson is over. Uh, so so there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, as you just said, uh, uh, which I want to respond to. But um, like, I really think it like once you the, the questions you're posing, the questions you're posing um, will ultimately will ultimately come down to. Um, the awareness, the consciousness, the choice of the person who's asking that question, like how they want to play. Like as you become like maybe more and more uh, aware or less and less identified with unconscious or, or, or hidden sort of things, well then how you choose to answer that question or what you think is like kind of like the, the, the foundational level will change. And so I'm going to go specifically what I meant by that general one second. So um, I would say, I mean, my thought is on the on how you position that question. Um, everything in the reality of and the the reality with the the lens which you see reality, which deals with procession of the equinoxes and age of Aquarius and stuff like that. Um, uh, by definition is duality. That is, that's part of like the makeup of duality consciousness, seeing this, uh, there's not, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's, that's part of it. As long as you see that and these tricksters, you know, there's a certain level of trickster that continues to shape life, life on earth, whatever the, whatever that means. So that it looks like the, um, the story of the procession of the equinoxes. Like, okay, now we're going to take down the age of age of Pisces sort of symbology and introduce Aquarian symbology, however we see fit. And when we are, we as the individual, like, you know, someone who's got some degree of awareness, like, Hey, I'm a human being on uh, living on earth. And I recognize that my, the way I, what I bring to observing my experiential reality literally determines it. Um, once you kind of move, if you move, if you are seeing it from the lens of the procession of the equinoxes as, as like, you know, this is just how it is. Well then uh, it's just moving from duality to duality um, experience. But if you're like, well, hold on, like, you know, that in itself is not a baseline reality occurrence. That's just like, you know, a very foundational one of, of our, you know, culture right now, our Western civilization, if you will. And I can see how that actually plays out. And I can see that it's like real on a certain level. 
But when you realize that it's not, and you can ground yourself primarily there, um, then I think you're outside of the duality world. And like, maybe from that level, like, you know, that's when you're like, well, I'm still here. How do I go when I interact? How do I go and I interact with like, you know, what I do in my day-to-day life? What role am I going to play? Am I the good guy? Am I the bad guy? Am I not playing in the game at all and just watching it? Like, you know, that, that to me is where I think it gets really exciting, but you know, that has to be true for the individual. Like, you know, where they are is where they are. What, what I'm getting now is like the trickster is like the mascot for the apocalypse. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> A certain level, definitely. Like, you know, it's, um, there is, and it, 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 dep- it really depends upon how, how, how you want to look at it. Did you ever see the, the video? I think it's called My Pet Goat One. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's very, it's very, very, very unsettling. Yeah. Yes, it is. And so can you, the, can, can you remember the details if I go into something specific? Will you know what I'm talking about? I hope so. I hope so. Okay. So there was like, uh, do you remember the scene like where the guy is kind of like a Jesus-y looking character and he's on like the canoe and he goes into the cave? Yes. And then you see this other guy who's kind of like, um, almost looks like, um, an Ed Burton character, like with the, um, with the top hat and the white Tim Burton. Yes. Tim Burton character. Yes. Tim Burton character. Do you know who I'm talking about? And he's like jumping and diving. He's kind of like orchestrating it. Mm, Yes. That's the trickster. That's how I see the trickster or like on, on like the higher level, the higher level trickster. Like that guy is very much involved in the destruction, but then he's also involved in the destruction in terms of bringing this guy through. Yeah. Through the entire process. Right. Like the uh, Jiminy Cricket character almost. Like the Jiminy Cricket character. Exactly. We see this character in all of these different sort of lights um, in, in a lot of our, in a lot of our mythology and, you know, the way they want us to frame up, um, to frame up understanding life. Mm. We see that a lot. And so that being said, so I want to go, do you have that email in front of you? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it should we read it? You think? Why don't you read at least the middle of it, where where like uh, he's talking about and he's asking specifically about some specific things, like you know his question. Right. So he's asking us about the topic and the tactic, more specifically, of muddying the water in order to discredit, uh, or or maybe some would call it limited hangout. Then he asks uh, if you if we think that they sprinkle false information or unverifiable fantastical information into the mix to spoil the narr- the narrative, specifically the Epstein child sex traffic trafficking and the fixation within some conspiracy circles on the unverifiable occult ritualistic adrenochrome aspects and the glossing over of the verifiable aspects of his business and personal relationships. I see similar things within most 
conspiracies, and he, he puts that word in quotations, and I see it as a very powerful tool to delegitimize anyone who questions state-sponsored narratives. The entire QAnon psychological operation can be seen in this light as can magnetic nanobot graphene vaccine narratives or even the pre-planted explosive narrative of 9-11. That is not to say that all the ver unverifiable things are necessarily false. It is just that a more it's just that a more persuasive way to lift the veil on subtle reality to the uninitiated is to stick to the verifiable. The pharmaceutical companies lobby our government and exchange personnel with the FDA and WHO, and they are the only ones left paying for advertisement on legacy media. Thus, you probably don't need their vaccine since the people telling you to take it are directly implicated in, fun in the funding of and release of the virus. Maybe the buildings were imploded, but regardless, why weren't the generals in the chart in charge of protecting our airspace demoted for catastrophically failing in their job. Why did Pakistan's ISS general fund the attack? What is the relationship between the CIA and the ISS? What is the relationship between the Bush family, the Carlisle group and the bin Laden family? Then he apologizes for his long message and then synchronistically asks for a take on the Holy mountain, which is, Interesting, because I've been on a podcast twice called Oral Hygiene, and my friend Matt kind of asks you to watch a documentary and then come on the show to comment on it, and that was the last thing he asked me to watch, and we were supposed to do an episode together on the Holy Mountain, so it's interesting. But Oh, I, I like that set, that setup for a podcast. I think you'd watch, be... Watch a doc documentary and then discuss it oh that that's a really or watch anything and then discuss it i think that's a really cool thing as a should, side note i think we should include you in that and that would be a side note but in response all right to, to all RCC. right i'm down with that so let's go let's go back to to the email first off like i'm so psyched like you know we've got something to work with you know someone sent <laughs> something out uh so what, so you go first. What do you what do you what were your initial thoughts in terms of that email and everything we've been talking about? <laughs> well, it's definitely apocalyptic, that's for sure. But it brings to mind um you know, I, I agree with him. I think I have a, a fair amount of skepticism when I look into things and I do entertain a lot of things, but I do like to maybe stay as balanced as I can where I'll discuss something. And then I don't know, people have heard me talk about this and people have probably heard my episode with Sam on tinfoil hat, but I tried to give Alistair Crowley uh, a kind of a fair spread and talk about his good points and bad points. And then after I mentioned some of his bad points, and tried to go back to his good points, Sam got really mad and was like, what are you talking about? These, this guy sucks, you know? So <laughs> that, <laughs> that I've definitely been in the position where, you know, that's kind of, you know, happened to me where I try to be more of like uh, fair and neutral 
And somebody who's a little more uh, emotionally invested is like, well, you know, don't be so neutral, take a stance. And I think that's what happens. This is what this guy's talking about is people take a stance when they're discussing certain topics and it muddies the water or delegitimizes the subject because like he points out, well, maybe if people weren't talking so much about adrenochrome, they would have realized that Epstein was working with Bill Gates, was working with all these different people. So I, I totally agree with his larger point that, you know, they use fantastical aspects of conspiracies to discredit the the larger line of, of thinking and maybe even give the appearance of, of like a psychological dysfunction where, you know, most people who are interested in this stuff are highly intelligent. And, and that's really what's going on. They're a functional person in a dysfunctional world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely so. Definitely so. Um, that was, uh, um, it was a, a, a nice illustration you made with, with your experience on Sam's show. Uh, my thought to his question was like, yes to all of it, like everything we're talking about. And it, it really depends. Like, you know, this is where, um, maybe self-awareness um, of where you're coming from and other people are coming from, like really comes in handy because uh, depending upon uh, what you're trying to ascertain and depending upon how you understand the world and what you think the world is, is going to dictate how you will go and look at this trickster narrative in these examples. So, you know, there, there's, there's a certain level uh, implied when, when talking about, like, the real nuts and bolts of these scenarios of, um, of like, they're real people and they're real organizations and, and um, this really happened. And, like, before... We, we, we get into anything really deep. Like we, we just need to sit there for a little bit. And that is, that is really, um, you know, that is profound for a person that has certain level, like there's a certain level of reality where they're like, okay, this is real. This is solid. This is good. This is the way it is. And then like there's corruption on top of it, but like the, the foundational level, like whatever that may be, you know, this is, this is, this is the, um, this, this we can, we can, we can build upon. Um, and so when you're looking at like beginning to realize like these institutions that we have been sold, um, sold on throughout our lives as being like, you know, the, the, the gold standard of whatever they are, that they're in actuality, it's not what you think it is. Like, um, that is, that, that makes sense. That's where someone should be. That's where someone should be. Uh, but if you're at a level of reality where you're like, well, hold on. I know, I know by default, it's all fake. I know it's all fake or whether the fake being that it is just purely corrupt or fake being like the entire culture, like all of this is like, you know, this, when we talk about the calendar, like at the level of like the, where the culture share 
an agreement upon what day of the week it is. Like they're all complicit. That's all sort of fake. And so this kind of, you can't speak to someone um, at a level. If you have the, if you can see all of these different levels and you can only get to those different levels by spending time there, spending time like contemplating, thinking, looking at it from that perspective. Um, until you've done that, you don't know they exist. Like, you know, this is what, what the, the, the trickster shows us all of this. And, and so there is a level in which you can identify the person and what their, if you're having a conversation with them, you know, what their level is. And then you also realize like what your level is. And then you realize like, you know, there, all of those things are true too. Like um, there is a lot of, of disinformation. Like, you know, it's we, uh, the, the, the nine 11 one, um, you know, I'm going to use, I'm going to focus upon that. So the falling of the towers, you know, we're told that, Either they fell that fell naturally by the result of, of an airplane or airplanes, um, or we're told that it's controlled demolition, um, and then, or we're told that it's an exotic weaponry. Um, all of these different sort of things, and then you you have um, you know the other elements like, well, did a plane actually hit it? It was a missile that hit it. Like all of these different things, and. I don't know, you know, which, maybe it's all three, maybe it's none, maybe it's a combination, who knows. But when you're at a level where you know that that doesn't matter, well, then that doesn't matter. And so there's, there's an element of recognizing who you're talking to and where they're coming from. And when you're talking to people with, with a variety of flexibility in terms of their perspectives, like to me, that's really, really exciting. Kind of like what you were talking about, the conversation we're having right now. But then the other thing is like looking at the actual people who are involved and, you know, the tricksters, the people who were involved with like, let's say insider trading or the people who were involved with all of these different um, levels of making things happen. Like those people have different levels of consciousness, you know, and this is like the, the, the useful idiot is someone who doesn't even realizing that they're doing something um, that they're fitting into someone else's plan and they don't see how they fit into it. You know, they're doing what they think is true uh, to the, to their perspective or right in their perspective, but they are being manipulated from someone who's got greater awareness. There's some people like, you know, who are just like naturally very, very, you know, uh, psychopathic and focused just upon their, you know, survival of the fittest and their, their survival is the most important. Then you have, you know, other people that maybe see this as part of like a much larger game, you know, whether it is the controlling of culture based upon like the procession of the equinoxes. So, so, you know, going back to the original question and the original point about like manipulating from behind the scenes and manipulating synchronicity and trickster and stuff like that, um, it will it will meet you as an individual where you are and it will always give you something of discernment and bring you to another way of seeing things, a broader and broader perspective, or at least, you know, that's how I see it. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, that's the whole condescending nature of this censorship of information. It's like, hey, I'm a 
totally, you know, normal thinking human being. I've read plenty of books. I don't need you to tell me what's misinformation or not. I have plenty of discernment. And as a matter of fact, I pride myself on that because I think that's something that you cultivate over a thinking, you know, your years as a thinking person is a a level of discernment. So it, it feels kind of condescending when people, and not this guy who emailed us at all. I love the email. Thank you. And his, uh, his, um, sorry, what, acronym not acronym his initials his initials are rcc to bring the rosicrucians yeah i i thought the same thing (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah it's just it's feeling like more and more like we're being treated like idiots in the mainstream media's eyes like oh these people they can't be trusted they're reading all these conspiracy theories and you know we have to be able to straighten things out because we don't want people thinking wrong think you know it's it's very i don't even want to say orwellian it's very huxleyan you know with aldis aldis huxley that's really what it reminds me of more than 1984 it it's like this um apocalyptic uh techno chemical future because chemicals are a big part of it and and he mentions the the graphene you know being possibly a way of fantastic uh of fantastical thinking within the whole you know jab stuff and and i i don't know i mean to be honest i don't want to mention this researcher's name but when i spoke to them on a on a phone call i was like wow this person is very paranoid I don't know how much I trust this person's research anymore, you know, cause y- you know, you've been on plenty of podcasts. Greg does a fantastic job of editing his show. And somebody mentioned to me off air is like, yeah, Greg can make anybody sound good. And I think that's something that people need to be conscious of when they're listening to podcasts, you know, have a level of discernment that like, just because somebody's on a podcast doesn't mean they're an expert. And also, just because they sound nice and and good while you're listening, there might have been an hour or two of editing, you know, little snippets here and there. Maybe somebody kept, like, coughing or saying, um, a lot. But, like, I don't know. There's been cases where people have said stuff on my podcast, and I'm like, well, maybe I should edit that out. Uh, maybe I shouldn't. And then I kind of have settled on not editing in that way for content just because I want to be as honest as possible, but I could see how people might take that liberty, especially in conspiracy podcasts. You know, maybe you're afraid of your show getting censored. So you, you censor out the, you know, the more dangerous stuff and you put it on your Patreon. You know, I've, I've been on shows that have done that to me. Um, or maybe it's more insidious and somebody's actually editing out things that they think that people shouldn't hear. You know, and, and that's when the level of discernment comes in and you have to be able to say like, oh, well, this host goes to commercial a lot. I don't know if I can trust him or not that having ads is necessarily a bad thing, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Mike? Well, you, 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 you began by bringing up the, uh, the condescending nature of like, you know, um, so the question I, you know, what I think is interesting um, is who is that or who is the person on the other side? 
you know, who is that person who you're saying is being condescending, is saying like, we're, we're, we'll be the ones who tell you um, what's uh, official or what's right or what's not. Um, my sense is, <laughs> for the most part, um, all of them, they, 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 they realize what they're doing. Like that's, that's what they're, that's what they're paid to do. In fact, that's what, that's what kind of 1984 was part of it was about was Winston. The main character is, um, he was part of the, the, the ministry of propaganda, putting people down, you know, the memory hole, right, right. Wiping them off of the history books. Um, and he was becoming aware of what he was doing. And so not being aware would be useful idiot and happy to have their job and like, you know, being aware and like asking like, is this right? You know, who is the person on the other side? So I find that a real interesting sort of thing, but then it, it goes back in my opinion, you know, to what we talked about um, last time, which is the, the, the internet has always been from the very beginning has been a um, designed as a tool for trapping. You know, regardless of whatever we think trapping is, uh, the guy who kind of spearheaded the beginning of the project, which became DARPAnet or ARPANET, um, you know, he was also in charge of uh, behavioral operations. You know, so why is this this behavioral operations guy also this computer scientist guy? Like, you know, they're they're overlapping those two, and so I think this is all. To me, all of that has been the plan is to, to tell people kind of how to think. That is part of that trickster, whether they're aware that they're doing it or not. Um, and then just like what you said at the end about um, ultimately like the discernment which you have gained through your experience. And that is that is at least, you know, one of the 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 byproducts of of the trickster is it forces you to become more aware to at least be open to like, well, let me look at this from multiple perspectives because I've been tricked these ways before, whether it looks nice, it's got a pretty package or, you know, it sounds right or any other of these, um, fallacious arguments, you know, to go and manipulate how people interpret and understand the information that is given to them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, that being said, I, uh, um, uh, I think, um, you know, me personally, uh, I don't look at that grant. I don't know, but I don't look at that. The, what, what's being said. I've seen all of the, the, or I've seen a lot of the research or, you know, the supposed things with the graphene and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And that does, that doesn't sound too outrageous to me. But then at the same time, if it turns out to be, I'm not going to be, you know, I, I'm not vested either way. To me, I, I'm like, all right, well, this is certainly, you know, worthy to be on my radar to continue to pay attention to. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, it was curious. And I, I think this guy has a really, uh, really good point. And I'm glad he reached out. And I encourage more people to reach out with uh, 
with topics because if you couldn't tell folks i just woke up this morning so it's <laughs> nice to it's nice to to have an email to fall back on i do apologize mike for not being a little oh, bit there, more. there's 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 no apology necessary and and, and the question and the sure. and 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 the, the the question is totally legit. Like the whole like the the Jeffrey Epstein thing, the way it unfolded, uh, there's something so not right about it. Like I don't know whether adrenochrome is a thing or not. I've I've definitely um, I've definitely looked at it from both sides. Um, but what I do know is like there's 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 something afoot with how the story is being told, um, even if it was just like, you know, are people going to get up and ride in the streets when we say that he committed suicide um, just as a, like a, a temperature gauge for like, you know, what's going to shock people? Are they going to be shocked to like the whole thing being like uh, um, just like a story? just a story to put out there to, for whatever reason, you know, I think back to, um, the, the, the temple, you know, quote unquote temple, which sat on the hilltop on his Virgin islands Island and how it turned out, like how it was originally like portrayed as being like an actual one. And then you look closer, like, no, it's just, um, it's just a painting technique to make it look like it's something that it's not. And, you know, all of these sort of things, like it, it, there, there is definitely the whole story to me, it has an element of something's not right. Uh, and I do agree with him. Like when you look at the players, to me, the, um, uh, what was, what was her name? Uh, I never know how to pronounce Just it. Uh, Maxwell. Yes. Like her father is like the biggest tell in the whole thing. That is the mega, the mega group, which, which, which is behind the whole thing. I, I found that the most interesting aspect. Yeah. And she's story, like, a, but I don't, she's a, a bond girlfriend type character. You know, she's got a submarine license. She's got a pilot's license. It's like all what? that. Yeah. All that. Exactly. Exactly. Her dad being the most celebrated Mossad agent in history and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Well, like, and you bring up, you bring up Redding earlier in our conversation and you brought up New England being this like prep school area, you know, and, and Redding having the only prep school that's not in New England and you know, growing up in New England, having that sort of insulated, very, very wealthy culture, just kind of around the corner and it's pocketed. There's certain areas that are wealthier than others in new England, but it's there. And it's really, it's, it's, um, it's blunt when you come face to face with it, you know, it's very much like, um, a strata, like you would see in a country like India, you would think, you know what I mean? It's like, it's very bleak feeling, um, to, to realize like, oh, wow, these people have multiple huge properties and like this is just their life and they're making no attempts seemingly to give back to the larger community, you know, which is, which is disheartening, but it does make you want to, you know, do what kind of Owen and, and Sam were talking about on the recent episode of Tinfall Hat, which is start your own community, go off the grid have your own property, have your own land and just get out of the the system because the people who are winning in this system have no mercy for the majority of the people that are also in that system. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Truer things could not have been said. And it also makes it really, you know, fun and interesting to investigate. (laughs) I don't know if that's out of spite or not, but yeah, just like the thought that, oh, maybe I've run into one of these Ghislaine Maxwell type characters in my, like many just walkabouts through New Haven and, and, or, you know, driving around through different neighborhoods in Connecticut as a, as a delivery guy. I, I don't remember if, uh, Oh, it was it was Richard Grove, and I, I don't think it was this week, but the week before. Richard Grove and I were talking, and Richard is the uh, the guy behind Autonomy. He's got some interesting stuff. I know stuff. Richard Grove. Cool. So he lives in Connecticut as well, and I mentioned to him, like, oh, you know, one time when I was an Amazon delivery driver, I delivered to this huge mansion that had a helipad, it's right outside of the capital city of Connecticut. And it, I never, it, I mean, it didn't really click then, but the last name Chase, obviously people are like, well, JP Morgan Chase, right? And Richard was like, yeah, that's that man. That's not anyone else. It's not a coincidence, you know, because as a delivery guy, I'm like, listening to conspiracy theories, doing tinfoil hat binges, Grimerica show binges, higher side chats, listening, you know, for whole eight hour shifts to just conspiracy content. Right. And then I get a, a package that says like, Oh, put in this gate code. And I'm like, okay, drive up to the gate, go up the, the long driveway. There's a helipad. The house is like the size of a school, you know? So I've come I've come to the doorstep quite literally of that type of uh, that type of aspect of our society. And yeah, it's just, it's very fascinating. I don't, (laughs) I don't want to go too far into like investigating and snooping around, but I think you, you don't necessarily have to like go and like break into somebody's house or, or, you know, go where you're not welcome to figure out, these kind of mysteries and do these investigations, you know, in a synchronistic way, my delivery job just kind of pushed me there. Uh, I didn't have to, you know, (laughs) go after hours and sneak around like somebody who came at it from a different angle might have to. That's a wild story. It's like, and, and, you know, with the, with the Bush stuff too, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, just being a delivery guy, I get put in, in Yale University, delivering to a house that used to be the Bush families, walking through the house, you know, in such an unorthodox way. I think I described this on this podcast, maybe like the first episode or so. But then the same thing with Amazon, you know, I'd be delivering in these really wealthy neighborhoods and just see things that kind of stood out. And I almost felt like synchronistically, I was being brought there just to observe, you know, and, and get a, a better idea that, oh, there is a reason to go further. Like these conspiracy theories are not just infotainment. You need to look into this stuff because it's, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's why, like when I, (laughs) when I stood at the door of this little mansion, uh, or not little big mansion, this little man with a, with like a, a, cute white dog comes up to me 
and takes the package, I'm like, oh, this guy's not so bad. I don't know if that's one of the Chase family members, but he seemed like not an, uh, a bad guy, but he seemed very afraid of me. <laughs> that was one thing that I did notice. But, um, but yeah, it was just, it was the right place, right time and nothing substantial. It's not like I, I kicked over a rock and there was like a hidden key underneath or anything wild like that. But I think just being put in a place like that is so rare and the average person in my position would probably not take that kind of note. You know, they might marvel at the size of the house, but I would say, you know, not to speak poorly of any of my fellow delivery drivers, but they weren't looking for that kind of stuff. If they were delivering to a mansion, they were like, oh, cool, this house is huge, that's it. You know, they weren't paying attention to names on the packages or little details like I was because I was just in that sort of mindset of everything's a clue, <laughs> you know? That's, that's a fun way to be, I'll tell you that. I think it's a smart way to be as well. Thank you. So we just, we've been, we're about two hours in. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we might have to do, uh, might have to do something, uh, with like the extended segment. If we go past like an hour and a half, maybe put it on, on the subscribe star or something to, uh, to give people, a. uh, an incentive to support. What do you think? Is that, would that be too? We can do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Cool. Right on. Yeah. We have been getting, uh, going off on, on many tangents. Is there anything you think, uh, needs to be wrapped up? Anything that we left hanging that you wanted to comment on? Can you include the pictures I sent you? Like, is there a way to include that in this? Absolutely. For folks who have those pictures. Yeah. For folks who haven't looked, um, each episode artwork for the Your Handbook for the Apocalypse podcast has been unique. I put a little bit of time into creating a photo sort of representation of what we talked about. Um, the first one I think was just the, your Susquehanna River logo, which I think is so cool. Just the green and blue one. Um, and then, yeah, the little crow figure is me. And then there's a, uh, a figure of you, but I think I'm going to use the, the one where you're like sitting down with the magnifying glass that you drew yourself. I think I'm going to use right. that from now on. So this week's episode artwork will have the, what, what's the proper name of the, the craft you got at the, the can of I have no idea. <laughs> I don't have a proper name. Well, I would call it like a, uh, like a, a weaved, arabesque almost looking thing but arabesque like kind of brings to mind a whole totally different part of the world but it is kind of like uh it's like indigenous psychedelic art in fabric that's one way to put it um and so i use it to place crystals upon Ooh, see now this is this is something everything i like i don't make something just to make it i make something to use it mm. and this year is definitely um to be used so maybe I'm maybe I'm forgetting the <laughs> this part because all right, so I had this beautiful staff, like this pine wood staff that 
Tara and I found while we were walking and I brought it home with me because my intention was to kind of sand it down and, and use it as a walking stick, you know, and maybe we'll touch on this next week or something after I actually do something with it. But I left it in the front lawn thinking like, oh, nothing will happen to it. Not remembering that, you know, my father, you know, mows my grandmother's lawn every week. So he comes by and runs it over with his lawnmower. And I, at first I was like kind of very upset. Like, oh, my dad, what a jerk. Just runs over my walking stick with his lawnmower, completely shreds it. And then I look at it and he actually kind of made it cooler than it was before. Now there's a spot where I can put uh, a big crystal. So the lawnmower in a way actually helped me out. And maybe took some of the work off my plate that I would have had to do with the saw and, and sandpaper. All right. So I want to I want to hear how that progresses, and because uh, I always love to hear the walking stick stories. Well, and I'm almost done the one which I'm working on. So maybe I can share some pictures with that next week. Yeah, yeah. That's that was my point. Is like you are very ingenious with your crafts and your artwork. So I, I hope to. Uh, to include that in the show and, and my attempts at, at making stuff too. I don't want to go ahead and, and call myself ingenious, but I will say folks, if you haven't seen Mike's art before, do check it out. Can they still see it on Susquehanna alchemy or, or would maybe your Instagram be a better place for folks to see more? of? I think if you're interested in seeing that in the early, early posts and in Instagram, I had pictures of art. Very cool. So yeah, but I haven't follow, put anything out for a while. Well, follow Mike on Instagram, send him a message there, or you can email me at mfticpodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a message at podinbox.com slash mftic. You got to spell that mftic in capital letters. Go over to the Susquehanna Alchemy inbox once you're at that page and leave us a message and maybe we'll play it on the show so you will be on the Your Handbook for the Apocalypse show. That's the intention. We're writing this in the real. What are we going to do? The world is changing. I don't know. But Mike and I, we're going to be here each week talking about it. What do you think, Mike? I think that's a great way to end. I hope to hear from folks. I love the, I love the, the playing off of their ideas and direction. So please continue to do so. Mark, right it's always a pleasure. Until next week. Right on. All right, Mike. Thanks for talking. Take it easy. refers to the process of something of less value changing into something of greater value. Susquehanna Alchemy is the name of a series of programs and services that facilitate inner change or transformation. Tools to assist in accessing deeper parts of ourself. 
The cumulative effect of these experiences is a cleansing, softening, and expansion of the inner world. Space is created, and it is in this space that the transformation will naturally occur. Susquehanna Alchemy uses art and symbols. The practice leads to greater stability, awareness, intuition, and creativity. The Susquehanna Alchemy process is recognizing our place at this point of time in history and how it connects to the past and the unfolding collective future. In this modern era, technology is the driving factor behind everything happening on Earth, either directly or indirectly. Technology itself is changing rapidly, but it is changing us rapidly as well. The course which technology is on is as dangerous as it is promising, and all of us who are alive now are intimately connected to the outcome. As an individual becomes more conscious, more aware of how their personal journey impacts the global journey, the dynamic begins to change. No longer do global trends drive the individual experience, but the individual experience begins to impact global trends. Quite literally, as we change inside, we affect change in the outer world. This has always been true, but during this time of global transformation, it becomes the responsibility of the conscious person to actively encourage their own personal transformation, even if only to contribute to the collective unfolding that is taking place.